you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be in verses 17 to 26 this morning. Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 26. And as you're turning there, I'll point out to you that this passage is the beginning of Jesus' most well-known sermon. We know it by the name, the Sermon on the Mount. It shows up in Matthew 5 in longer form. It's here in Luke chapter 6. Luke condenses it a bit. But both of the versions of the Sermon on the Mount are emphasizing the same point. What is the Sermon on the Mount concerned with? It's concerned with how Jesus' disciples ought to live as citizens of God's kingdom. How we ought to live as citizens of God's kingdom. And it's a way of life that turns the ideas of this world upside down. So as we read the text here in just a moment, listen for for the theme of reversal. For the theme of reversal. How the kingdom of God turns the world's thinking on its head. So would you follow along with me now as we read from the Scriptures? This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church beginning in verse 17. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch Him, for power came out from Him and healed healed them all. And Jesus lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good in Christ. Let's pray now as we consider God's Word together. Father, please give us illumination now by the work of the Holy Spirit. We confess, Father, that apart from the illuminating work of the Spirit of God, we we cannot see or believe or understand the things that You have spoken and revealed here in Your clear and inerrant Word. And so we ask, Father, for the Holy Spirit's work among us. We pray that you would please keep me from error and grant this, your church, the discernment that we all need to hold fast to the truth. Father, please manifest yourself among us now in the preaching of your word. Remind us that when we hear the word of God, rightly divided and received by faith, that we are hearing the voice of God among us from the scriptures. Remind us of that, Father, and give us soft hearts to believe and to repent and to obey, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. By this point in Luke's Gospel, friends, you might say that we've come to expect the unexpected. 
So far, nearly everything in Luke's, uh, everything about Jesus' life and ministry has gone against the wisdom of the world. This has been true from the very beginning of the book. Think about the circumstances of Jesus' birth, though the angels announced that a king had been born in the city of David. Where was Jesus actually born? Not in a palace attended by servants, but in a stable. It's welcomed by shepherds. It was unexpected, right? And that theme continued into Jesus' ministry. Think about the circumstances that Jesus has encountered so far. Though Scripture clearly testifies that Jesus is the Messiah, and though Jesus' own works confirm His identity, how have the leaders of Israel, His own people, how have the leaders of Israel responded to Him? Not with joyful submission, but with hostile opposition. Again, it's unexpected. It's not what you would think at least according to the world standards. But in our passage today, friends, we find that this unexpected reality applies not only to Jesus, but to His disciples as well. Following Jesus, being a disciple, following Jesus does not match the world's way of thinking. That's how you could sum up this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Following Jesus does not match The world's way of thinking. I hope you heard that theme as we read. The world says today is what matters. So get all the satisfaction you can in the present. But Jesus says true blessing is a gift that God gives in full only later. On the last day. The world says suffering indicates you're a failure. So do everything you can to be well liked in this life. But Jesus says Living for the world's approval only means that you're going to get a much greater suffering in the end. You see, compared to the world's way of thinking, the road of following Jesus is not what we might expect. The road of discipleship is unexpected. And if we're not prepared for that ahead of time, we might very well find our own discipleship derailed as well. And that means, brothers and sisters, we need to pay careful attention to what Jesus is saying here In Luke 6, these verses are not mere spiritual platitudes. And neither are they verses of mere social commentary from a strict religious teacher. This is the Lord Jesus serving as our Good Shepherd. He's preparing us ahead of time for what it will be like to follow Him in the world. He's preparing us ahead of time. And if we're honest, friends, this teaching from Jesus is something that we need to hear again and again. Consider how easily our discipleship gets off track because things don't meet our expectations. How many times have you faced a difficult situation and thought somewhere in the deep recesses of your mind, isn't faith in Christ supposed to make my life easier? Or how many times in the midst of hardship have you wondered, If the Bible says knowing God is a blessing, then why is walking by faith so often marked by trials? I know I've asked those questions many times. Maybe you have too. And our passage today is reminding us that the problem in those situations is not with God. Frankly, friends, the problem is with us. The problem in those situations is that we're trying to use the world's categories to explain life in God's kingdom. To use a silly analogy, that's like trying to play basketball with football's rules. It doesn't work. You can't use the world's categories to live in God's 
kingdom. It doesn't work that way. And that's what Jesus is getting at in today's text. Discipleship, following Jesus, does not run according to the world's wisdom. It doesn't work the way the world has said. And in His kindness, Jesus tells us this ahead of time. That's why He's the Good Shepherd. He doesn't leave us to be caught off guard. He doesn't ask that we sustain our own faith. No, He prepares us. He tells us the truth about blessing, how it's found in God and not in stuff. And He calls us to live today in light of the last day. To live today in light of the greater blessing to come. He's the Good Shepherd. All of that to say, friends, this passage is one that calls for close attention in part because we need it so desperately and also in part because it promises such incredible grace from the Lord. As you look at the details of the text there in your copy of the Bible, you can see that there's three distinct parts to the passage. You can see them there. Let me sketch them out briefly for you. The first section is a summary in verses 17 to 19. And from here we should note the presence of the kingdom. The second section is verses 20 to 23. And here we need to understand the promise of true blessing. And then the third section is a warning. Verses 24 to 26. And from there we see the peril of unbelief. So three, three distinct sections giving us three truths that I hope will prepare us to live as citizens of God's kingdom. Let's begin then in verse 17 with the presence of the kingdom. The presence of the kingdom. By and large, these opening verses are a summary of Jesus' ministry so far. Despite the opposition, Jesus continues to garner attention. Notice in verse 17 that an extensive crowd has gathered around Jesus. There are apostles who came down the mountain with Him. There are disciples those who have embraced Jesus' teaching to some degree and have begun to follow Him. And then Luke says there's a great multitude of people, both Jews and Gentiles it seems, from all over the place. Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, Sidon, that's like the whole neighborhood. Everywhere. Jews and Gentiles. These people are interested in Jesus, but they haven't become a disciple as of yet. So this great crowd, apostles, disciples, people, despite that opposition... Verse 17 is telling you that Jesus' ministry continues to grow. The world can do all it wants to oppose Jesus, and yet Jesus' kingdom grows. That's verse 17. But the most important feature of the summary comes in verse 18. Notice how Luke describes the crowd as coming to Jesus to hear and be healed of their diseases. Those two actions, hearing and healing, are a snapshot of Jesus' ministry. Most importantly, people have come to hear Jesus. Which, of course, reminds us that Jesus is a preacher of God's Word, first and foremost. His ministry is marked by what we might call kingdom proclamation. This is Jesus' essential message, friends, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And therefore, people ought to repent and submit themselves to God. And that truth is now being revealed most clearly in Jesus Himself. Himself. So it's only a short phrase in verse 18. It's only one word actually here. And yet it reminds us that Jesus' ministry was essentially about kingdom proclamation. Preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. At the same time, verse 18 summarizes this healing ministry that Jesus regularly performed. We might call this Jesus' kingdom demonstration. 
Jesus proclaimed the truth and then He demonstrated or confirmed that truth through His ministry of healing. This is why Luke, in particular, consistently recounts how Jesus healed the sick and drove out unclean spirits. How do you know that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ? Because sickness and the forces of darkness and sin, none of those things have any power compared to Him. With a word, He drives them all out. That's how you know the kingdom of God has come because Jesus confirms it or He demonstrates it with His own ministry. So, there can be no doubt, friends, the kingdom of God, Luke is telling us, has broken into this world with the coming of Jesus Christ. But as the rest of the passage makes clear, following Jesus is more than coming to Him to be healed. It's more than having His power meet your needs so that you can get on with life as you want it to be. This is really important, friends. Verse 19, notice there, Jesus has an incredibly powerful ministry. I mean, in fact, it says power is coming out of Him to heal people. What does that look like? I don't know, other than amazing. Right? Verse 19, Jesus has an incredibly powerful ministry. And yet, what does Jesus immediately begin to do in verse 20? He begins to teach. You see it? He begins to preach to them from the Word of God. Do you see the progression? Powerful miracles, verse 19. Serve the proclamation of God's Word in verse 20. It's about more than power, in other words. Jesus is burdened here that we understand the heart of His ministry. Yes, Jesus has the power to heal, but He has not come primarily to make people's physical lives better. He has come to bring people into the kingdom of God. To redeem them. And then to equip them to live in step with that kingdom. Friends, this is an emphasis that the church in our day needs to recover. And perhaps it's an emphasis that some of us need to remember this morning also. The Gospel of Christ is not a message about how Jesus overcomes your deficiencies, thereby enabling you to live the life that you've always wanted to live. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel is the message that we're all sinners, separated from God and without hope in this world. But that God, being rich in mercy, sent His Son to redeem His people through the shedding of His own blood from the power and punishment of sin. That's the Gospel. And if I were just to say something very pointed, I would say this. If we view Jesus simply as having our needs met so that we can get on with life as we've always wanted it to be, if we think of the Gospel like that, then we probably don't understand the Gospel. And you may not believe it either. So before we even get to the details of the Sermon on the Mount, we need to be sure that we understand who Jesus is and what He came to do. He's not primarily here to make people's physical lives better. His ministry is both hearing and healing. His works confirm His Word. And that means the Gospel is not a message of self-help or self-actualization. The Gospel is the good news that you can't do anything for yourself. And Jesus came to do it for you. And to save you and to bring you into His kingdom. It's kingdom proclamation confirmed by this kingdom demonstration. That's the summary Luke gives us, verses 17-19. to And with that summary, 
in view, we have the context for the sermon that comes next. Jesus has come proclaiming the kingdom of God. And in verse 20, He begins to prepare His disciples to live for that kingdom. This is where we find the second truth in our text. Jesus gives us the promise of true blessing. The promise of true blessing. Most likely, you're familiar with verses 20 to 23 which are often called the Beatitudes. You're probably more familiar with Matthew's version than Luke's. Whoever gets to the market first, right? Like Matthew's Gospel is first. You know that one better. You're probably familiar with these. They're the Beatitudes. They're pronouncements of blessing. You could also say, though, that the Beatitudes are a reminder of what truly constitutes the good life. According to Jesus, the good life is not found in following the world, which prioritizes the immediate and promotes the self. Rather, Jesus says the good life is a gift of God's grace that comes to those who belong to the kingdom of God. So if you want to be blessed, right? if you want to live the good life, you've got to see how God's kingdom is upside down from the world. That's really what Jesus is getting at here. Before we consider the details of the Beatitudes, though, we have to answer a foundational question. How should we understand uh, precisely what Jesus is teaching here? Let me just give it to you in the form of a, of a question, an either-or. <clears throat> Do the Beatitudes prescribe the conditions you must meet to enter the kingdom of God? Or do the Beatitudes present the promise God makes to those whom He brings into His kingdom? Are they the conditions you have to meet? Or is it the promise that God makes to those whom He brings in? Friends, I'll contend that the second option is the right way to understand Jesus. The Beatitudes are not conditions we must meet, but rather God's encouragement we're meant to receive. So think of the Beatitudes as fuel to strengthen us as we run the race of faith. That race is hard, right? It's especially hard when it seems the world's wisdom is turning out better than God's wisdom. What do we do in those moments? Well, we remember the Beatitudes. We remember the teaching of Jesus here in Luke 6. We remember what it means to be truly blessed in the kingdom of God. It's got a different definition. It works a different way. That's what the Beatitudes are, friends. Not conditions we meet, but little glimpses of reality. Right, Little glimpses of what's true that are meant to encourage us along the way. Now, let me show you from the text why I think that's the right way to read Jesus. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it from the Bible that I think this is the right way to read Jesus. Notice, first of all, in verse 20, whom Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to His disciples. That is, Jesus preaches this sermon to those who are following Him. Now, the cross and the resurrection are still in front of Jesus at this point, so these disciples still have a lot to learn, and yet, even in these early days, Luke calls them disciples. These are the ones who are blessed then, according to Jesus, those who submit their life to Him and to His teaching. Not conditions we meet, but promises God gives. It's given to disciples. The second reason has to do with that term blessed that starts all of the Beatitudes. Very simply, friends, that is a term of grace. It's a term of grace. The Beatitudes are not a way of twisting God's arm. It's not a divine quid pro quo. It's not if we choose poverty, then God pays us back with the kingdom of God. That's not how the Beatitudes work. 
The Beatitudes are a declaration of God's grace on those whom He has called to Himself in Jesus Christ. Now, to be sure, the Beatitudes do call us to respond. You absolutely have to orient your life around the truth that Jesus gives here. Grace always calls for a response. But even then, our response is just that. It's a response to the grace that God has revealed in Jesus Christ. So those are the main reasons. There's more. But those are the main reasons, friends, that we should understand the Beatitudes not as conditions we meet, but as encouragement from God to be received by faith. This is part of God's grace to keep us running the race of faith. So now we're ready for some details on the Beatitudes. There's four blessings in the Beatitudes, but the four blessings are really describing one way to live. And that means it's most helpful to consider the Beatitudes altogether. What do these pronouncements teach us about the truly good life or the truly blessed life according to Jesus? Well, you could sum up his teaching in, in three aspects. I'm going to give you three aspects from the Beatitudes on what it means to be truly blessed. Number one, the Beatitudes remind us that true blessing is found in dependence on God. True blessing is found in dependence upon God. Look again at the text and notice how each blessing is spoken to someone in great need. You see it? Jesus blesses the poor, the hungry, the weeping, and we might say the persecuted. Now, the primary focus here is not a physical or material position. If you recall Matthew's account, you'll remember that Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that gets more to the heart of what Jesus is teaching. He's speaking here of a state of dependence that drives a person to rely almost solely on God. So, think about those who are blessed. Whom do they picture? Well, the poor is the person who cannot buy his way out of trouble. The person who has chosen by faith not to pursue the world's provision according to the world's wisdom. The one who is hungry knows there is something he needs for life, yet it is something he cannot provide for himself. The one who weeps knows that the world is not right, and he longs for God's justice to be revealed, and then to reconcile all things according to God's righteous requirements. And the one who is persecuted has decided by faith that allegiance to Jesus is worth whatever cost this world demands. Even the cost of reputation, livelihood, and material provision. And it's this fourth person, the fourth blessing that really clarifies this for us. This is key, friends. Notice in verse 22 why the persecution comes. It's on account of the Son of Man. That's Jesus. So the persecution comes in connection to the Lord. In connection to Christ. You see, that's who Jesus has in mind. It's the person who follows Christ by faith, even to the point of being poor, hungry, weeping, and reviled. So I hope you hear the emphasis here. The Lord Jesus is urging us to see something more fundamental than social status or material provision. 
I'm not saying that it excludes those things. I'm saying it's more than those things. Right? He's calling us to see that true blessing belongs to those who depend body, soul, and spirit on God and God alone. That sets up the second aspect that we take away from the Beatitudes, and these all build on each other. So that was number one, depend on God alone. Here's number two. Those who depend on God alone must remember that God sees and one day will act. Those who depend on God alone must remember that God sees and one day He will act. Look again at the text and notice the implication that's easy to overlook. In each situation of need, God sees this person. He is aware. According to Jesus, God's people are not alone. For God Himself sees them in their need. But God does more than see, friends. Jesus says that God acts for their sake. This is the blessing that overturns worldly circumstances. Notice how it plays out there in in the text. The poor receive the kingdom of God. That is, they are encouraged that their citizenship is already among God's people and that their physical poverty cannot rob them from God's redeeming love. The hungry will be satisfied, Jesus says, which means they will receive nourishment to sustain their faith and their hope in Christ. The weeping will laugh, which means they will find joy one day when God finally vindicates His people in righteousness. And the persecuted are blessed to know that they stand in line with the faithful prophets of God, stretching all the way back to the Old Testament. The persecuted are those who have hoped in God. They are like those who have hoped in God from the beginning. Just like Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah were persecuted for holding fast to God, so too when people persecute you today, Jesus says, you know that you belong to God. You share in that lineage. Friends, the point I'm trying to make here is that in each situation, God acts to overcome the hardship that His people face in the world. That's the blessing that Jesus promises. It's that God sees and that God acts. So I want you to think for just a minute about a down payment. right? Think about a down payment. If you're buying a house or if you're buying a car, you put money down, right? Or you want to put money down. That's right. And that money does what? It helps secure your full purchase. You, you get the purchase when you put the money down even though you can't pay everything in advance, right? It helps secure your full purchase. Well, here in the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying that the hardships of faith in this world are the down payments of future blessings. Right? It's, it's, the hardships we experience now are like the down payments of what God will give you later. As we endure poverty of spirit, we are blessed with the knowledge that the kingdom belongs to those who believe. As we hunger for righteousness, we're blessed to know that one day our hunger will be satisfied with God. As we weep with sorrow over a broken world, we're blessed with the promise that there's a day coming when all things will be made new and right in Christ. In other words, in other words, The hardships of faith are not meaningless, Jesus says. They're not meaningless. They're actually purposeful. They're designed by God like the down payments of the greater blessing that is to come. So when your heart aches over the fact that the world is not right, God says you are blessed 
because it means that you will live in the world that is right one day. You see how it's working? Brothers and sisters, that's some powerful encouragement. I take it. This is a blessing that the world can never match. You can spend your whole life chasing everything the world has to offer and you will not get anything near as powerful as this. It's a blessing the world can never match. And more than that, this is a blessing the world cannot take away from you. (laughs) Right? If they persecute you, you're blessed even more. If they take even your life, you're blessed to full measure. And so, armed with that blessing, do you know what we keep doing, brothers and sisters? Armed with the, the, the grace of the Beatitudes, do you know what we keep doing? We keep running the race by faith. Jesus is saying. We keep depending on God alone. We keep hungering for righteousness. We continue to weep in faith that a new creation is coming. And most important of all, we keep bearing the ridicule of Christ and Him crucified. That's how the Beatitudes work. We do all of that, Jesus says, because here we have the voice of our Good Shepherd telling us that we're blessed by God and that God sees and that one day God will act. That sets up the last aspect of Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes that I think we should see. Depend on God alone. God sees and God acts. Here's the last piece of the Beatitudes. The promise of the last day produces joy for us today. The promise of the last day produces joy for us today. Throughout the Beatitudes, there's a tension between the already and the not yet. Or, to say it another way, we live as Christians in between two days. The today of the present and the last day of Jesus' return. We're always living in the tension of those two days. The right now and the what's to come. And the blessing that God promises His people comes in the midst of that tension between those two days. So let me explain to you what I mean. Notice in the first beatitude, verse 20, that Jesus speaks in the present tense. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Not will be, is. Right? You see, it's present tense. It's a present tense blessing. Those who depend on God receive the blessing of God's kingdom in the present. Remember, God's kingdom is God's redemptive rule and reign over all things. So to have the kingdom of God is to know God's redemption. That's what it means. When you have the kingdom, it means redemption belongs to you in Christ. It's yours right now. And the world cannot ultimately do me in because it cannot take from me the redemption of God's kingdom. It's a present tense, right now, today, blessing. But then notice that the other Beatitudes are future tense. Do you see it? Verse 21, you shall be satisfied. You shall laugh. The point here is that the fullness of God's blessing is yet to come. We know this by experience. We're still waiting for the hunger of our souls to be satisfied. We're still weeping in hopes of vindication. So do you see the future tense Tension here. We're already blessed with the kingdom of God. And yet we're waiting on the fullness of that blessing to come. Tension between two days. Now, here's the key point. What happens when the, all, when the already of God's blessing and the not yet of God's future blessing come together in the life of a believer? What happens when the last day begins to shape 
your today, what happens? The answer, brothers and sisters, is joy. Look at verse 23. Rejoice in that day. What day? The last day. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Friends, that's the takeaway. That's the payoff, you might say, of the Beatitudes. The promise of the last day is so powerful, it produces joy in God's people today. Even as we hunger for God, we rejoice knowing that satisfaction is as certain as every sunrise. As we weep, we rejoice knowing that God Himself will wipe away every tear on the last day. Why does Revelation speak of God wiping away tears? Because we weep now waiting for that day to come. And even as we suffer for Christ's sake, we rejoice knowing that persecution for the faith is our heritage. Like our forefathers of old. And that heritage ends in glory. So when they revile you for holding to Christ, you say, praise God. I'm standing in line with my forefathers and my foremothers in the faith. It's joy, you see? It's joy. Not the sappy sentiment of better circumstances. I want to clarify for you what I mean by joy here. It's not the sappy sentiment of better circumstances. It's not the flimsy pleasure of material stuff. It's not the fleeting mist of the world's acceptance. Those things feel happy for like a minute, but then they don't last. You get the new house, then you want a bigger house. You get the next phone, you want the next phone. You get that person to like you, you find another person who doesn't like you. Those things don't last. They feel happy in the moment, but they won't endure. The joy that Jesus is talking about here is sturdy. It's robust. It's rugged. It endures. And it has roots that outlast all of the unexpected seasons of discipleship. It has roots that bear fruit in every new season. That's the kind of joy that Jesus is trying to give to you and to me. Friends, I I pray that your heart is gripped this morning with this nearly indescribable reality. I'll confess to you that I have been dreading this text because the Beatitudes are so well known and I wasn't sure how to preach them. And then I studied and I was convicted of my dread and then encouraged by this grace. The, The blessing that God holds out to His people is far beyond anything this world can give you. Yes, The road of discipleship is filled with unexpected realities that try your faith. Yes, there's poverty of spirit and hunger of soul that saps your strength. Yes, there will be tears along the way. Jesus doesn't deny any of those things. But there is joy that sustains us as well. There is joy that comes from knowing the blessing God gives to those who trust Him. And it's like a down payment on the greater joy that is to come. And so, you put all that together, and what are the Beatitudes saying to you and to me? They're saying, don't live for this world, friends. Don't live for this world. Don't invest your today in things that cannot save or satisfy you on the the last day. Don't fall for the deceptive scheme that power and wealth and comfort are the most important pursuits in life. They're not. Don't listen to the world's Wisdom, in other words, embrace this upside down way of thinking and living that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. And then receive the joy that Christ promises here. 
And just to drive this home, friends, I want us to see very briefly the third truth in the text. It's the other side of the Beatitudes, and we're going we're gonna to close with this. It's the flip side, so to speak. And in these verses, you can hear the gravity of Jesus' teaching. Verses 24 and 26 give us the peril of unbelief. It's the peril of unbelief. These verses are not hard to interpret. They're the flip side of the Beatitudes. Instead of blessing, Jesus pronounces a series of woes. A woe is a lament. It's a sorrowful expression of what's going to come. And in that sense, a woe is a warning. So Jesus pleads with people to understand that unbelief is disastrous and deadly and destructive. Just as the blessings picture those who depend on God, the woes describe a person who depends only on himself. Verses 24 to 26 are describing a person who depends only on himself. The rich are not simply those who possess wealth, but those who trust in it. Remember, friends, the Bible is not against money. The Bible is against trusting in your money. Right? The rich is the one who trusts in his wealth. Jesus says that's a poor way to live, regardless of what your bank account says. Those who trust in wealth will find no comfort on the last day. The one who is full is the person who pursues the world's satisfaction. A person who lives only for the world's provision. Tragically, such a person finds that on the last day there's a kind of hunger that only God can meet and you'll be in eternity lamenting the fact that He has not met it in your soul. The person who laughs now is someone who has no sense of eternity. You know those kind of people. People who have no recognition that there's a God to whom we must give an account. Such a person fritters away his life on little things until the last day comes and he weeps in sorrow that he's wasted all of his todays. And finally, the people pleaser in verse 26 spends his life on his reputation, even at the expense of righteousness and truth. But in the end, he will find that being a friend of the world means you're an enemy of God. Just like the false prophets in Israel. You see, the woes are warnings. They're warning you, friends. Not to rely on yourself or on the world's way of life. Things may seem free and easy in the here and now, but in the end, that kind of living leads to destruction. And this is a very serious point that we need to consider. To be a friend of the world, Scripture says in James 4, is to be at odds with God. That's why we read James 4 earlier. That's the truth that Jesus is pressing home on those who will listen. We can either live for the present and pursue what the world calls good, or we can, by grace through faith, live for the last day and pursue what God calls good. And here's the key, brothers and sisters. The values of those two respective kingdoms don't overlap. There's no Venn diagram where in the middle you've got the world and the kingdom of God and you can be safe in there. It doesn't overlap. The kingdom of this world looks appealing now, but later it ends in disaster. The kingdom of God, however, is costly now, and in the end it leads to blessing. And so this is the question that Luke 6 leaves us with. Will we live for Jesus and His kingdom, trusting by faith that there is blessing and life everlasting in Him? Or will we live for the world and its kingdom, believing that today's pleasures are worth eternity? Friends, that's not an exchange or an investment that you want to make. 
Will we live for the kingdom of God by faith? Or will we live for the world and its kingdom? That's the question that Jesus is pressing upon us. And so, I just close with a prayer. May God grant us grace to repent where we have strayed. And may He give to each of us the faith we, li- we need to live today for the last day when Jesus returns. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, Your Word tells us, the Bible tells us that Scripture is sharp like a two-edged sword. And that it pierces even to the division of the soul and the spirit. And it reveals the secrets of the heart. Father, we want to be pierced by Your Word so that our hearts are laid bare and we might repent and believe. Father, the reality is that each of us in here lives for the world far more often than what we would want to do. Would You give us grace to repent, Father, and to recognize that today is the day, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, that today is the day to repent and believe and embrace the Gospel again. And we do ask, God, that as a church, You would shape our expectations and our hopes for life according to the Beatitudes, according to the Kingdom of God, and not according to the ways of this world. Would You help us, God? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.